Hello, everyone. I'm Molly Shagru, and welcome to the Inside OSU podcast. Today, we'll be reflecting on the 2016 election and how to prepare for 2020. I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Sky Cooley and Dr. Randy Kluver about some key takeaways on the 2016 election and highlights from their recently published book called Global Media and Strategic Narratives in Contested Democracy. We talked about weaponization of social media in presidential elections, the danger of fake news, why the way other countries view our elections is important, and how the unpredictability of the 2016 election really changed the game on how elections are won. First, we'll hear from Dr. Kluver, who is the Dean of the School of Global Partnerships at Oklahoma State University. We'll also hear from Dr. Sky Cooley, an associate professor at Oklahoma State and whose research centers on Russian communication, global media, and digital democracy. Here's the interview on this week's Inside OSU podcast. What we were looking at is how global media audiences heard about the U.S. presidential election. And we looked at the processes of the election, the candidates in the election, the outcomes of the election, and then how those audiences made sense of American democracy through looking at that signature event, that presidential election. So what we find is that event is so well known around the world, everybody tracks it around the world and they use it to reflect on the meaning of America, the meaning of American democracy, the meaning of their relationship with the United States. So for us it looked like a great opportunity to really capture a comparative perspective Why do you think that this election was so different than any one that we've had before? This election was an outlier in the volatility of it, in the unpredictability of it, in the way the candidates came across, particularly Donald Trump. Um, Seeing how those nations made sense of this very non-traditional candidate was fascinating for us, and how they... Uh, I wouldn't say that any of these different nations chose sides as much as it was, but there were clear preferences for which one of these is going to be better for us, which one is going to be worse for us. So, for example, Russian media tended to give better coverage to Donald Trump than anybody else. Um, And it wasn't so much that they were for Trump as much as they were against Clinton. I I would also say that... um, this election happened at a time where you have that rise of other nations anyway, particularly getting better at putting their message out into a global media sphere, challenging um, Western sort of hegemonic media presence, right? Like you're always getting the, the Western narrative and they've gotten much, much, much better at challenging that. And the election offered some unique opportunities to do that, to really say, oh, look at look at how these institutions that are supposed to be democratic are crumbling. Look at how hypocritical they are. Look at how violent and nasty this process is. Who are they to to, to say anything about our process? And that was really something that we saw, um, particularly in the Russian system, um, where that came across a lot, where they were saying, you know, you they, they people are you're always getting this challenge from the West to the Russian political system, but look at their system, right? And so it really gave a contrast point uh, as an event, more so than the candidates were talked about. I think the process was something that was discussed a lot. Do you think that the 2016 election will change the way that people view and cover the upcoming election in 2020? I think everybody's become more cynical. 
they'll, they'll be looking for a little bit more spectacle. The thing about that 2016 election is it did become a spectacle. It's like a circus. And I think they'll be looking for that this time. As Dr. Cooley said, I, th I think the other thing that really happened, though, is, is we saw across the board, um, particularly strong in, in Chinese and, and Russian media, that sense that the American democracy is not that great a deal. Look how this thing's playing out. Look what a, a, a fiasco this process is. I expect we'll see that theme increase in the 2020 election. The idea of American democracy, one of the things that we sort of close out the book with is that the perception of U.S. democracy, uh, at least in the areas that we looked at, there, there was really a strong narrative that, that was countering it, right? Like really saying, this is a nasty process. Do you really want to be like this when you, you're aspiring for uh, democratic institutions? Is, is that what you have in mind? Because look how nasty and volatile, look how people turn on one another. And so absolutely, I think that you're going to see very pointedly that. And, and also um, that being pointed out in our process as well to us. So not just being pointed out to, uh, you know, their domestic audiences, but one of the things that Russia as you know, has been covered well in the U.S. media, has been very good at is pointing out and, and highlighting those divisions within our society and really trying to, you know, further them all. U.S. legitimacy took a hit. U.S. credibility took a hit. And it was a pretty severe hit. Um, and and I, I think if you look at subsequent geopolitics, you see, that, you see that play out. So, for example, right after this election, the president of the Philippines, which is not one of the nations we covered, but the president of the Philippines basically said, we're done with the Americans. We don't need it anymore. We're going to throw in our lot with the Chinese. And so the, there was a hollowness around the world to, to claims of the legitimacy of American-style political processes. You go back and you think about the debates and all those things that happened during the debates, talking about people's hand sizes and who's dumb. And it, it just it, it undermined the textbook story we tell about what democracy is and why it works the, the underbelly was exposed right the the corruption of our political system was just so it, that that's what was being talked about by the candidates themselves and so it really just unmasked um just the nastiness of american politics and yeah we took it it, it was a big hit and what's interesting about that is again no matter if clinton wins or trump wins that that hit still remains because the election is such a huge event and people are attuned to it, um, and it was just such a nasty process. And again, I expect the same for 2020. So social media was a big thing, I think, in this past election, especially everyone's watching Donald Trump's Twitter. You know, how do you think that really affected the election and other people, other countries' perception? I think we're pretty clear. Uh, we didn't include social media in our data set just because it, there was no way we could get at it, but we did monitor it looking at um, particularly Russian uh, social media and, and Russian influence on, on Facebook. And, and we know that that had a significant impact on fragmenting the American politic, uh, political body. There was a very deliberate attempt to drive wedges in, in, in between uh, Americans. Um, I don't think that cost anybody the election. I don't think it swung the election, but it very clearly played a role. And, and it's contributed to what we see as Americans, which is this polarization of American politics. It's going to be really hard for us to, to, to overcome. And what we see in the United States is really nobody wants to get over the polarization. And that, of course, is one of the values we've always told about American democracy is that our process 
keeps everything on track. But then people looked at the process and said, are, are you kidding us? It's just not a discursive medium if you really think about what social media platforms are. They're, they're designed principally to, to market and sell things. And so people use them in ways that market and sell themselves. And they're, and they're inherently, it's not about a discussion. It's about self-presentation, either of an idea or of an image. And Donald Trump is really, really, really good at that. Um, and it... it but it, it's not in a conversational way. It's in a weaponization of, of, of media. And when you get other candidates that start to mirror that, it becomes really dangerous and toxic to our political process. Because, and what we saw in the debate, and we talk about this in the book as well, it's, it's not a debate in that it's not a conversation. It's literally like one side of an argument and then another side, and they, they, they just talk right past one another. And it's not really a conversation to solve problems. It's it's like a social media presentation, like a character. It's an advertisement. So how do you think journalists can prepare to cover the 2020 election, learning from the 2016 election? There's been, uh, within our field of political communication, there's been talk for a very long time of how we need to reform how that media coverage happens because we focus on the controversy, we focus on the spectacle side of it, we there's not nuanced coverage of the election, the meaning of the election policies. It's 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 a it's a play-by-play of a of a boxing contest more than anything else. And so, I think that many American journalists have realized out of the 2016 election by structuring the questions and the media coverage the way they did, they actually helped undermine that serious policy discussion. Will they change? No. Do they know they need to change? Yes. Why won't they change even though they need it? Because the audience loves it at this point. We really do love the mud fight kind of aspect of it. If we go to the foreign journalists, the people that we really looked at in our analysis, um, we would love to say that they're going to do a better job of doing nuanced policy analysis. But at this point, particularly in these regions that we're concerned about, Russia, China, and the Arab world, they sense blood in the water, right? So now is going to be a great time to really hone that, that, that killer instinct to go and really drill down on the flaws in the American political process. To me, I think if you want to talk about what to do better or how you do better, you have to sort of think about one of the things we, we talk about in our work a lot is perspective sharing, the importance of it. One of the reasons why we looked at those countries um, in those particular areas and why we do the work that we do is to offer U.S. policymakers the perspective of others. Like, here's how we're being perceived. What does that say about us? What should we be doing differently? And that draws back to a notion of power um, that is collective, like real power. What is it? And, and it's the ability for people to come to common agreements with one another. And that involves being able to understand one another's perspectives. And that's a different kind of debate. And it's a different kind of structure than we see in our politics. And I would hope that journalists try to do that, try to promote that, try to find those common grounds uh, amongst candidates and really push for for those kinds of discussions. That's what I'd like to see. Are we going to see that? No. Because with the spectacle, it's the spectacle. Um, and that's what people like. When you look at what I'd like you to do is the next debate that comes up, look how it's advertised to you. It's, it's like a boxing match. Literally, it's presented to you like a movie. It, there's trailers for them. And, and, and that's how it's thought of. Um, we're not thinking about commonality and common ground and common perspective. And, and that's, the, that's the problem that we've got.
Do you think that's why there was all the fake news coming out, just because it was easy to sell? What exactly is fake news, and what was that in the 2016 election? I think the problem, what's been accelerated, though, is not the presence of fake news. It's the amplification of fake news, where, as Sky was mentioning earlier, the what social media allows you to do is not just say, okay, I think this, but then you pile on without ever having that opportunity or need to respond to somebody else's counter perspective. And so the fake news element, I think, and all we mean by that is stuff that isn't true. And there's always been this. There's always been fake news. But it's just so amplified and it's become such a major part of our process now. And more worryingly is the fact that people are okay with it that audiences are okay with saying, I'm only going to listen to this voice or I'm only going to listen to this voice. I'm not going to listen to what those guys think because I've written them off. They're immoral. They ought to be thrown in jail. They're horrible people. And so that's where the the real dynamic is at this point. Do, do you believe in witchcraft? Do you believe that I could turn myself invisible right now if I wanted to? No. Exactly. And so whenever a thing becomes... When you don't understand its processes, whenever a thing becomes invisible and surrounds you constantly, which is what the internet has become, it's like magic. Um, and, and there's an inherent distrust of, of magic. And so you can't see it. it it's, you don't really believe in all of its processes and how it works. And so whenever you, you've got any kind of information you possibly want at your fingertips instantly, what do you trust? What do you believe? What's real? Uh, it's like the mind-body problem amplified. It's like on steroids, right? Um, because I can access this, this network now that will give me whatever information that I want. And so what do I ultimately trust? My gut. It's not a rational process anymore where I'm trying to discern. It's that I just sort of go with what I inherently believe in. And so what is fake news? It's anything that I don't agree with. That's what it's become. It's anything that's against the position that I've got because I can find countless examples to support and reaffirm the thing that I do believe in, whether that's the earth being flat or being round or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Like it, there, there's this, there's this, this amplification of, of every perspective, and I can find my own. And so for the consumer... Particularly, um, you know, we, we, we're specialists in this, right? So we, we're constantly paying attention to politics. Uh, for people that have, you know, a nine-to-five job that doesn't involve constantly watching the media, um, they're, they're consuming just little bits and fragments and pieces of it, and they don't have the time nor the will nor the desire to try to process and rationally find answers. And so when you've got all this, this, these different opinions and voices coming at you, it's just easier to say, you know what, this is what I believe and this is what I'm going to go with. And that, unfortunately, gets weaponized in, this, in our current media environment. Going back to your book and other countries' perceptions of American democracy, and they're thinking now, I don't know if this is the type of country that we want to be like. Um, do you think that any changes will be made in America because of this? A lot of scholars and, and political scientists and so on use a concept called soft power. And what they mean by soft power is your ability as a nation to get others to go along with you that um, is more or less a form of persuasion. So they contrast hard power, your military power, your economic power, your political veto power, with just that idea of attraction, that I want to go with you because I really like what you stand for. 
And soft power, it's, it's a problematic concept, but there's some real value in thinking about American soft power because we're largely considered to have the, the, the greatest amount of soft power because of our entertainment industry, our educational system, our political system. And so American soft power, our argument in our book, is took a hit. We lost a lot of soft power through that process. We didn't lose all of it. We're not the laughing stock of the world anymore. People still want to send their kids here to school. They still want to watch our movies. They still want to listen to our music. They still value a lot about the United States. But where, where we've lost our influence is really in that geopolitical realm of going to a nation like the Philippines and saying, you know what? The Russians are not your friends. The Chinese are not your friends. We are your friends. That's where we took the hit. And so the problem is our whole process has to get back on track. And right now, there's nobody who wants to get it back on track because whoever tries to get it back on track is going to lose the election. The next election is going to be everybody playing by Donald Trump rules. It really is. I don't see because that's what's working at this point. I think it won't be until the 2024 election that things could really change maybe later than that (laughs) at this point i don't see anybody trying to get it back on track i don't see a desire on the part of the american population to get it back on track we're just sort of hoping that we can survive this period of turmoil i tell people i taught a class called political communication in the fall of 2016 When I started that class, the syllabus was clear. I knew all the rules because we'd been studying political communication for decades. We knew how you win elections. We knew how you did commercials. We knew how you did debates. We know what you could and couldn't do. Boom. I taught the exact same class in the spring of 2017. I threw out the syllabus and I started the class saying we have absolutely no idea what's happening anymore because it's so upended conventional political communication. And so... Right now, we're in the midst not just of, okay, we've, we've taken this blow, but I'm incredibly worried about what the rise of artificial intelligence is going to do, what the rise of, of these new softwares that allow you to basically impose anybody's face on any video, and it looks real. We're really in the beginning stages of this fake news thing. And it's going to be really hard in the 2020 election to even figure out what's real. Who did what? Who said what? And I'm I'm personally pretty worried about it. Yeah, it, it's it's an it's an advertisement kind of space right now, and um, and we again we have a, a a privileged position where we get to see sort of or conversations on new technologies that are happening, and um, you know there you you know about the Twitter farms and things like that. That's just a small sliver of of the processes that other countries are using to weaponize media against our process. But think about all the institutional challenges that you've had to the American system coming domestically from within, challenges to the court system, challenges to um, FBI, the, the the roles that our law enforcement plays. Think about the conversations that we're having about uh, ICE, uh, the, the Border Patrol, uh, the, there are so many conversations that are taking place now within our institutions. It's a scary time. It's a scary time for democracy. We'll see if we're able to rise to the occasion. Um, 
I, I don't think it's going to happen this election. What advice would you give Americans when they're formulating opinions on candidates and who to vote for and how to go about this next election cycle? Try to find the candidate that really resonates with what you believe in and, and, and get out there and be vocal about the things that you care about. Um, don't find yourself in one of the echo chambers. Don't be when this election cycle, once it starts, once it really kicks off, all of a sudden things that you haven't cared about for a long time, you're all of a sudden going to be all riled up and, and care about. Um, I would try to avoid that. Try to think of the things that really do matter to you. Think about them now. Put those into your brain, what you want to stand for, what you want to vote for, and what you want to see before all of the advertisement starts, before the campaigns kick off and, and you get pushed into these boxes. Um, once the election cycle starts, it's so easy to become a victim of, of how the, the, the information gets weaponized. You sort of forget what your core values are and you let the media pull you into one box or the other and you feel this anger uh, and, and this visceral angle sometimes um, about issues that you really don't really care about or know much about uh, and I would say try to avoid that or pay attention to that whenever that happens like try to trace back and see where that's coming from and see if it isn't an advertisement. I think the biggest threat to the U.S. right now is not this candidate or that candidate. I don't think any of these candidates have savior potential. The biggest threat is our fragmentation and our polarization. And so the way you get around that is what we try to do with this book. It's triangulation. What are these folks saying? Well, let's contrast that with what these, these folks are saying and try to get into that narrative, try to understand that narrative, don't, don't just dismiss it. Our problem right now is we just dismiss anybody that we think disagrees with. We dismiss them as a liar right out of the back without even thinking, without listening. How do you know somebody's lying if you haven't actually listened to them? If you're just assuming they are. And so what we tried to do in this book is to help Americans understand how others see our political process. Domestically, that would be my advice as well. Listen to every perspective. Triangulate those sources and try to figure out what the true north is from that. Um, everybody, in a sense, has a partial grasp on truth. And if, if you just say... You know, I'm never going to listen to that person because they represent the party that I don't like. Then you're actually you're just contributing to the problem, and and so that's what I would hope that we would all start to do is say, let's listen to everybody's voices here and see if there is some consensus, perhaps that all the noise is obscuring. The 2016 election was clearly different from any other. Looking ahead to 2020, it's important to be aware of fake news to think about what matters to you now, and to be open to hearing another party's perspective. Dr. Kluver and Dr. Cooley's book, Global Media and Strategic Narratives and Contested Democracy, can be found online, both in print and as an ebook. Thanks for listening. I'm Molly Shagru. We'll see you next week for another edition of the Inside OSU Podcast.